0: They are themselves developing constellations. They want to have a constellation of their own by 2030, about 12,999 satellites. Added to that, they are uh, talking about uh, counter systems capability. Uh, That is to take out US constellations that are supporting military uh, operations on the ground. So it's a very interesting change of thinking. What I found interesting from the Chinese writing is that they have a very good understanding of what Starlink is capable of.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back, Downlink listeners. This month, the Downlink podcast has been looking at Russia's war in Ukraine. It's been a year since Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, ordered what all of us thought was one of the mightiest militaries in the world to take the Ukraine capital, Kyiv. It was supposed to be easy, but today Kyiv remains free, and some 200,000 Russian soldiers, sailors, and airmen have been wounded or killed. This war has allowed all of us, including China, to peer through a window into the future of warfare. All month we've been looking back at just how space-based assets, space-derived data, and the gritty creativity of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians have come together to produce strategic effects on the battlefield and the world stage. If you haven't yet listened to the prior episodes, I recommend you do so, as they underscore what this episode, the final installment, is all about, which is what's America's pacing threat, that's China, what that space power has learned this past year. Remember that Putin convinced China that his war to subjugate Ukraine would reveal a brittle NATO alliance and dilute Western resolve Worldwide. But instead, Sweden and Finland are in the final stages of joining NATO. This month, the Philippines granted the United States military access to five more military bases. That move strengthens the arc of U.S. security alliances from Australia up to South Korea, These are both clear-cut geostrategic defeats for Russia and China. The fact that China's President Xi Jinping is considering sending weapons to Putin that he might visit his new bestie in Moscow is not just about autocratic solidarity, but it is a sign that the Kremlin needs help and that China needs Putin to at least survive to keep the West busy in Europe while China prepares for its next steps in East Asia. To discuss those steps and which lessons China learned from Ukraine's masterful use of space assets, we have China military and space experts Namrata Goswami, Malcolm Davis, and Chris Stone. Here's our conversation. Nimrata, Malcolm, Chris, welcome back to the Downlink.
2: Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Laura. Great to be here.
2: And it's great to be here from Canberra, Australia.
1: You know, it's been a while since we've had you on the podcast, Nemrata and Malcolm. Let's give the listeners a chance to know you. Nemrata. why don't you go first?
0: Sure, Laura. So my name is Namrata Goswami, and I am an independent scholar working on space policy and international relations. I also teach at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. And very recently, I co-authored a book called Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Really delighted to be here, Laura. Thank you. And, And Malcolm, you go
1: next.
2: Uh, I'm Dr Malcolm Davis I'm a senior analyst in defense strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra Uh, and uh, my focus is on space policy and space security amongst other things uh, including future warfare future military technology Uh, and I, I basically write on a regular basis on all things in those areas
1: And finally, but definitely not least, Chris, you are a regular on the podcast, but please do take a moment and introduce yourself.
3: Sure. I'm Christopher Stone. I am a uh, strategic uh, consultant and senior advisor with Core CSI LLC, which is a uh, advisory company in Washington, D.C. area, uh, supporting various uh, U.S. national security organizations, I am a, a former special assistant to the deputy assistant secretary of defense for space policy in the Pentagon, as well as an author also of uh, reversing the Dow: a framework for credible space deterrence. Um, and so I appreciate being able to be back on.
1: Thank you all so much. Now let's dive in. Namrata, when I spoke with you about bringing the audience up to date on China's activities in the space domain, you specifically mentioned the balloons. Why don't you start with these high altitude airships before giving us the rest of the lowdown?
0: Sure, Laura. So uh, one thing that I think your audience would be interested in knowing is that uh, the way the balloon was discovered and the way the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs responded to it, right? So the balloon was discovered by the US and then when the Chinese uh, authorities were asked about it, they first of all claimed that they didn't have knowledge. And then later they pointed out that this was a wayward weather balloon. So in my assessment of China's strategy, including the willingness and the ability to send uh, objects into another country's sovereign airspace, land, or sea. This is actually not unique. It might seem very unique to the United States audience because it's happened probably for the first time from a Chinese uh, object perspective. That is a high altitude balloon. About but actually, One that we-, we
1: actually know about because there were three others um, yeah, prior to this, but yes.
0: Yes, but we didn't know who uh, it was, right? And so this is the first time it's uh, dominated the media and the American audience. So, uh, But actually, China has done that in regard to the seas. For example, last year in December, a Chinese naval research, so-called research ship, actually entered the Indian Ocean. And was scouting the Indian Ocean areas very close to India's territorial water. And when they were asked what it was, they argued that no, this is a wayward research ship, and yet it had surveillance and other intelligence gathering capability, right? And so, and this has been repeated with regard to Bhutan when China PLA Engineering Corps was found in Bhutan's high uh, border areas. And when asked, how come they were there with their research ship? They argued that, no, this was a wayward uh, activity. It was not sanctioned by Beijing. So my point is that I think hiding behind the strategic signaling is that China has been using this kind of objects in another country's sovereign territory to test that country's response, right? And then they have a very easy deniability to say that, okay, this was not coming from the highest authorities, either it was a wayward balloon and high altitude, or it was sanctioned by a very low level commander, which they usually did with India and Bhutan. So In that particular context, I think the balloon is not just about surveillance and intelligence gathering. I think it's also about testing how the United States is going to respond in such a scenario. And finally, I think it is China trying to showcase to its own audience that if such similar activities can happen in its so-called Chinese territory, which is the South China Sea, which you know is disputed, uh, they can do the same in another country's territory. Right. So in my assessment, that is why the balloon uh, is not actually unique. It's happened before. And so how is this related to China's space and other activities? Right. So I'll end uh, by saying that if you look at China's space activities as well, there is the development of a space strategy that is looking at rendezvous and proximity operations, getting very close to another object. Uh, going to a particular area on the moon where another country might be interested as well and starting to have first presence capability, and also testing the waters of how another nation might actually behave in case China has that counter space capability. And I'll talk later about how China has responded to Ukraine as well. And so that's how I see this entire context of the balloon. And I think that discourse is completely lost in the United States. I think it is not understood that this is a pattern of Chinese behavior, and it is not new, and it doesn't, it's not true that it has not happened before with another country.
3: So so real quick, I'll just add to what our guest Namrata was saying, is they also the fact that in, in Chinese strategic writings, they include upper atmosphere as part of their commanding heights viewpoint. So they don't see it necessarily as separation, and they also like to leverage the the, quote, lack of a definitive demarcation point between atmosphere and space, even though generally most most countries accept the 100 kilometer um, measurement. But that and other legal areas in China starting to think that um, anything that overflies them is considered part of their sovereign territory including their airspace extends out into outer space. So because of those, those types of things, I think uh, this is not surprising also, in addition to the fact that the Chinese are very smart at exploiting gaps and weaknesses for advantage, and the fact that our, uh, our tracking radars from the ground were designed for ballistic missiles and aircraft and not for necessarily for these types of things, they were, they were knowledgeable of that and they exploited it to, to their benefit.
2: Yeah, look, I would I would add in, um, I think that both uh, Namrata and Chris, uh, Chris have made some really good comments. Uh, when you look at the, the sequence of events, um, it seems to be that the balloon was launched from Hainan Island. It flew up over Guam, which, of course, is full of US military facilities. And then there's some suggestion that either it was purposely directed at, at the continental US or somehow... They lost control of it for some reason, uh, and it flew on the jet stream across Alaska and then down through Canada and across the United States. But the interesting thing to me is that the balloon paused in its flight over sensitive U.S. military sites, which suggests that the Chinese had some degree of control over that that balloon at the right time. Uh, so I think that the notion that the Chinese are suggesting this was a wayward a balloon is just farcical. Um, I think that clearly this was an intelligence gathering uh, system of some sophistication. Uh, If you look at the uh, payload uh, below the balloon, it was a large 90-foot-long boom with large solar arrays and a central uh, payload module in the middle that would have been ideal for undertaking signals intelligence and electronic intelligence gathering missions over sensitive US military sites, such as large numbers of ICBM silos and launch control centres in uh, places such as montana and then it continued on flying uh, past those sites over more u.s military sites before the u.s decided to shoot it down in an area where it was most accessible i.e just off the atlantic coast so i do think this was an intelligence gathering mission whether it was uh, they lost control of it temporarily but then they decided to exploit the fact that it was over the continental u.s i think is, is clearly something that should be uppermost in our minds And it does uh, suggest to me that they've done this before and the balloons haven't been picked up because the NORAD radars weren't at that point uh, set up to track uh, slow-moving objects. As Chris said, they're they're designed to track ballistic missiles and maybe uh, high-altitude bombers. And suddenly, lots of people on the ground had far more sophisticated um, iPhones that could Uh, photograph objects high up and suddenly everyone was on Twitter saying oh look there's a huge balloon up in the air which maybe they couldn't have seen the previous balloons because the technology wasn't that good back in those days well now it is and so the US government had to do something about it um, because the people on the ground were seeing it so I do think this was an intelligence uh, gathering effort on the part of the Chinese and You know, it's it's probably uh, blown up in their faces in the sense that now they've been shown to be, you know, acting provocatively uh, or exploiting a situation provocatively to their benefit. Uh, And the Earth will be more on its guard in the future. Um, But, you know, there are many other different technical means of gathering intelligence, including satellites and high altitude drone technologies and so forth. So... This, is, this has been an interesting uh, development, which certainly has, uh, I think, opened our eyes to what the Chinese are about.
1: And Namrata, there have been some other developments in China, for China, in the space domain. I, could you tell us about those as well?
0: Yes, absolutely. So uh, one thing that I think, uh, which is very interesting in my perspective, is that China has actually written articles and research papers looking at the cumulative effect of uh, digital warfare, uh, informationized warfare, as well as what they call mosaic warfare, right? In their conceptualization, this is how the U.S. would behave in a theater of conflict. So In that context, what has developed in the last few years and with the case study of Ukraine now in front of us is really, really fascinating. So Chinese researchers from the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force uh, published a paper last year in which they identified Starlink and other US satellite constellations, including Maxar, as an adversary constellation. Particularly, they are most concerned about Starlink's capability, not just for satellite internet, but also for communication, gathering intelligence, mapping the battlefield in case there is a conflict in Taiwan, and how that can be used to inform a particular commander's decisions on the ground, right? Today, what is so interesting is that that assessment from the PLA-SSF is coming true in Russia, right? So you have Palantir that is offering software that can actually bring different digital warfare, the digitization of the battlefield together. Uh, What Palantir does is that it uses commercial imagery. So, for example, uh, Starlink Constellation, Maxar. uh, There are images out there that you can buy. About 30 commercial satellites pass over a particular point, Uh, according to a Washington Post report. And so what I found interesting is that China had actually already kind of predicted that in terms of the space domain, right? And so that is interesting to me, that in their uh, military space thinking, what they are looking at from the Russian perspective is that how is U.S. commercial space acting as a force multiplier when it comes to actual conflict on the ground? And second, how is it going to impact China's own role, for example, in a Taiwan scenario, right? And what do they actually need to do? So what the researchers suggested is that they will have to have capability to ensure either through, you know, direct energy or through anti-satellite weaponry that some of the uh, Starlink satellite capability or U.S. commercial capability is not being able uh, to be used, right? And so I think I will end by saying that, and I'll keep myself limited to this particular military development, is that this particular thinking, Laura, is not new. So we think that this is what China is starting to gather because of what's happening in Ukraine today, right? How commercial space, how information, communication, imagery is helping the battlefield. Artificial intelligence is assessing your entire battlefield and telling you where the Russian troops are, what missile to use, even giving you reports that give you an assessment of what your missile actually accomplished, right? But China predicted this five years ago in their research papers, that this is going to be the battlefield of the future. And they're actually using now their entire own satellite capability as well as their communication information capability to inform their own battlefield as well. So uh, for China, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine and how Ukrainian military with support from NATO and others is responding is a learning lesson. And China has always learned from U.S. space capabilities, including the 1991 Gulf War. I predict that China would get even more active with Space enable information, communication, missile tracking, as well as artificial intelligence enable digital battleground, is what my prediction is.
2: Yeah, and I would add in, yeah you know, to follow on from Namrata, I mean, sort of, you know, it's that trend, those trends are only going to grow sharper in coming years, particularly as mega constellations start appearing, you know, with, obviously Starlink is is a classic example, but the Chinese are going to pursue their own mega constellations. They can see the clear connectivity between uh, small satellite technologies that can provide a variety of services and forces on the ground and autonomous systems. And it's that autonomous systems capability that I think is really important in terms of the lessons of Ukraine. You're seeing far greater use of, of autonomous systems, which are being developed for um, military purposes or even commercial drones that are being modified on the battlefield to deliver munitions and the ability to link that autonomous system via satellite back to a a long-range fires capability like HIMARS. The Chinese are are probably absorbing all this and thinking, how can we grow this kill web um, to actually uh, be comprehensive for the PLA how can we accelerate the speed of uh, sensor to shooter, uh, the fire chain, uh, the ability to draw a sensor either in Earth's atmosphere or in space to be able to understand the battle space and then direct fires rapidly? And I think that you know, artificial intelligence comes into this, autonomous systems comes into this, network systems come into all of this, uh, and there's, that, that's to me is the next step. It's it's how. High-speed warfare accelerates, it becomes pervasive and um, diverse across a whole networked range of systems, uh, and space forms a critical component of that. And that, in turn, demands that they have space control, that they deny the ability of an adversary to take out their space systems. How do they do that? They take out our space systems and our counter space capabilities. So it kind of, by default, pushes us into this mode of of space warfare, where both sides seek to uh, essentially achieve a battle—the first salvo in orbit, where who, who kills the other side's space capabilities first has that military advantage.
3: And I, I'll just add, I think, I think Malcolm, that you make a good point about about destroying the, the all the proliferated capability. And I know there's a lot of people in America that believe that resiliency through sheer numbers is sufficient to allow for uh, a survivability of capability. But if you look at the paper that Namrata mentioned, as well as another one that came out of a Chinese publication called Modern Defense Tech, where they speak about how to take out Starlink and they use the terms kill and dispose, not simply to deny or degrade, that they they view it not just as something that gets in the way of their objectives but something that must be removed, and so, while some people in America and other places have the viewpoint of comfort in numbers, we really shouldn't be that comfortable in numbers, given the fact that Chinese viewpoint on space warfighting is one of a multi layered approach. Mm-hmm. It's not just kinetic, it's non kinetic, and a lot of it's simultaneous. So, I let, think let that let me just we- jump
1: in for a second, sure. though, Chris, just for, for those that, that may not really be following along and understanding what is that numbers approach? What is that multi layered approach? What is it that S- the Space Defense Agency and the U.S. Space Force are considering in in terms of what a quote unquote proliferated architecture? I mean, what does that really mean?
3: Sure. So, a proliferated low Earth orbit is is called is what it's called, and it essentially means that resiliency or the ability to absorb attacks um, makes it more challenging to an adversary. So, rather than shooting old traditional three or four satellites per constellation, that you have dozens or hundreds or thousands of smaller satellites, like Malcolm was mentioning, to allow the mission to survive longer. So you can re-baseline your constellation after a few are destroyed or damaged, things of that sort. Um, Unfortunately, as I was mentioning, that the Chinese already see, they're already working on ways to get around that. And because low Earth orbit is within reach of a lot of countries, not just China, but Russia um, and some other countries that have, you know, the the limited capability of hitting low Earth orbit with missile systems, that it makes it a lot easier for countries to to target than say something higher up in in space or a multi-layered approach where some of the constellation is in low Earth orbit, some of it's in medium earth orbit, and some of it's in geo-earth orbit. So you got the, the altitudes anywhere from 60 miles up to a few thousand miles, low earth orbit, medium earth orbit is is between that and GEO. GEO is about 22,000 miles out. Um, so as a result, it, it's a lot harder to go further out. So if you wanna defend, it's usually better, at least in my mind, to do a more defense in depth approach. But that resiliency approach by numbers, a proliferated LEO is pretty much where everybody seems to be going, excuse me, in the United States. And a lot of other countries are jumping on that, Starlink just being one commercial example of a a proliferated architecture.
0: If I may add to what Chris said, I think that's a really critical point. Because uh, when I look at Chinese military writings, especially in the last five years, they're very clear that the Starlink constellation will not become ineffective if you take out just one satellite their argument is that it's a systems constellation. So for your audience, that means that they view, for example, the 2000s, let's take a scenario, there are 2,500 Starling satellites, right? You take out one, the Chinese argument is that that doesn't matter because others will do the work for you in terms of communication, satellite, internet imagery. So what you actually need to do is to develop a counter systems capability, which means that you're able to take out an entire constellation, otherwise, an anti-satellite weapon that takes out one is not effective at all, right? And so they're very clear. And so Chris's point about that constellation, proliferated capability. And so the argument is that, for as Malcolm said, they are themselves developing constellations. They want to have a constellation of their own by 2030, about uh, 12,999 satellites. And uh, added to that, they are uh, talking about uh, counter systems capability. Uh, that is to take out U.S. constellations that are supporting military uh, operations on the ground. So it's a very interesting change of thinking. What I found interesting from the Chinese writing is that they have a very good understanding of what Starlink is capable of. And uh, they see it as a systems capability, not a single satellite or a few satellite capability.
3: Yeah, it's called systems destruction concept. And and that tied with there are other concepts of of a more proactive deterrent posture and and a, a mobile warfare viewpoint of staying ahead of the adversary and outmaneuvering it. You combine all those together and their ability to escalate, and you've got a pretty great posture for deterrence and warfighting that I don't believe that the United States is is ready for at this point. So hopefully mm. they'll that they will fix that.
2: Mm. And I, th- I think also that you know this really emphasizes the focus on soft kill rather than hard kill um you can't take out thousands of satellites with kinetic kill ASATs. uh you've got to go using soft kill which is jamming uh cyber attack directed energy um that sort of thing so I that's where I see the Chinese and the Russians eventually going is soft kill capabilities that can take out a large number of satellites in one go rather than launching a few direct percent ASATs with a hard kill uh, mechanism that then yeah, creates all clouds of space debris that denies space to everyone not just the the other side
0: yeah and and Laura if i may add so you see a, a, a convergence of the chinese and russian strategic thinking in terms of uh, starlink so the Russian uh, representative in with the Committee for Peaceful uses of Outer Space, they just had a meeting. And he, when he started his presentation, pointed out that Starlink is actually very good for humanity because it adds to civilian capability, satellite internet in areas that do not have fiber capability or optical imagery capability. And so they, he argued he started with that. But guess where he went from there? So he then pointed out to the United Nations that this is a civilian capability, but it's being used now for military ends. And that's where the problem lies, right? So- But that's that's kind of rich though, isn't it? Hold on. Because,
1: I mean, Russia doesn't have really a commercial space sector and its civilian space sector, Roscosmos, answers to the military. So, I mean, isn't that just- yeah kind of hypocritical critical
0: well well it is to you and me but their audience is not you and me their audience is the united nations member nations and they're pointing out that here is a civilian satellite constellation that has been used for military activity in Ukraine, right? And no, my point is different, though. My point is that you see a convergence with the Chinese thinking here. So if you look at Chinese military writings on Starlink, they also start with a very long introduction of how Starlink and satellite internet is good for the world, especially those rural areas that do not have satellite capability, or, for example, they do not get the kind of broadband internet we have. From then on, they go to say that that, that is all well and good, but Starling also has this military dual-use capability that we are accused of in terms of our capability. So I say that they have a very interesting strategic convergence and argument that they are putting out to the world, and people are listening. So that is where I think uh, the U.S. strategic narrative should come in, in terms of what China and Russia are actually doing, the kind of uh, invasion that they had uh, conducted and using their space capability as well, and threatening other systems, I think that's where the narrative should be because they seem to have a convergence in narratives. And I could see that some members of the United Nations were listening to them. And so we need to factor in that in our thinking as well.
1: Here's a question that I've had you know, for basically the past few minutes. Right. Starlink is just one of those systems or one of those constellations. I mean, Viasat was the original owner of the contract with the government of Ukraine, right? And they provided satellite communications for the government writ large and also more specifically for the um, Ministry of Defense. But when Russia kicked off this engagement, they launched a cyber attack against a U.S. company, right? That was providing What one could possibly say was a civilian uh, 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 service, right, to these bureaucracies, et cetera, et cetera. And and in doing so, they also, when when this cyber attack uh, went off, that they. Basically turned uh, routers in uh, consumers' homes into bricks, and they also shut down a, a German wind farm, which is power that produced 11 gigawatts of power, and I would consider that to be you know critical infrastructure. But the thing is, is that then Starlink stepped up and filled the gap, and if Starlink goes down, there are going to be a couple other commercial providers that could step in. I mean do they just keep killing off commercial entities and 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 try and do the system of systems or are they going to also possibly run into a problem like starlink which is what you know russia has tried to take out starlink and to this day they have not succeeded i mean how really you know serious you know can the chinese think that taking out an entire system is actually going to win when starlink has already shown that the russian bears in cyberland can't do it
2: mm, it's an interesting question i mean and i think it also um you need to talk about the nature of the of the conflict if we're talking likely scenarios based around taiwan for example uh possibility that we're talking protracted war lasting months if both sides if both the us and china can't gain the initial advantage but neither side is prepared to succeed the ground shall we say uh then we're talking protracted war so in in space terms Uh, What that implies is uh, that, yes, it's difficult to kill a mega constellation, but you can slowly erode it, reduce its efficiency. But the other side, of course, can replenish and and reconstitute if they have a short access to space. And this is maybe where systems like Starship come in, uh, the ability to launch large number of satellites in one go on a regular basis. Um, So the paradigm of of space access is changing. The paradigm of space utilisation is changing. And so that's going to affect the nature of of military considerations in warfare, particularly in protracted warfare. The Russians aren't in the ability to do that sort of thing, but the Chinese might be able to play in that space. Uh, And particularly as we look forward in the second half of this decade, when know some people are saying is the most likely period for a conflict over taiwan so i think that looking at the russian experience in ukraine where they have struggled to to take down starlink is one thing but you've got to put it in the likely operational context of of a taiwan straits crisis or some sort of crisis in the indo pacific between u.s and china where it's protracted it doesn't necessarily end after the first few days
3: and I'll also add, in addition to the operational context, you have to think about what the strategic effect of the space or counter space attack system that, on the Chinese perspective is using for. A lot of people that I've talked to on, on my side, on, on the United States side, tends to kind of you know blow off the idea of the of attacking a mega constellation simply because, oh, they can't destroy all the vehicles. But it, it could be that they want to have a psychological effect by taking out a few of them that they think that, oh, this system will work great. And then they they are able to find out where the weakness is and exploit that with a cyber plus jamming plus a few, few kinetic strikes j- just to make a point. It could also be enough just to slow down a U.S. or allied response over Taiwan because of, of hitting of certain types of vehicles or uh, a situational awareness such as ISR communications. So it's not just a matter of can you shoot all the satellites down? Um, it's the operational context, like Malcolm says, and it's also what strategic effect that the space forces of China are trying to achieve in context with their overarching objectives in the conflict as well.
0: Yeah, and I think I would add that the latest concern coming out of China is about what uh, Starlink Communications is enabled, right? So. It's enabled communicating between battlefield commanders. It's enabled NATO to make an assessment of a digital battlefield and then pass that information down to the commander where Russian troops are, right, and how to hit them. And so I think in that context, in a Taiwan scenario, even if you can make some level of Starlink capability ineffective, that adds to China's quick attack for example, vis-a-vis Taiwan. right? So if you look at Chinese strategic thinking, uh, think of all the wars they have been engaged in. Think of the Korean War. Think of the war that they had with India or the very recent uh, attacks uh, with India at the border. It's a very quick attack and then retreat, right? Quick attack and retreat, right? So if they can have the advantage from that, Taking out some level of Starling capability in the beginning adds to their advantage. The one thing that I think I would add to this interesting uh, Chinese strategic thinking is that uh, in the in 2010, China sanctioned the development of underwater uh, uh, unmanned underwater vehicles. So these are autonomous underwater drones uh, that use uh, you know uh, GIS capability as well as uh, mapping that is based on satellite imagery, and then what is interesting is that once they actually build the battlefield space, they're also able to go down about 30 feet and then use sonar, of course, to identify if another uh, object is an adversary submarine. What they're doing in recent years through Harbing Engineering uh, University, which is uh, basically the PLA's military engineering university in its earlier version, is to use artificial intelligence and satellite imagery to make that battlefield space even more effective. And that's why they are concerned with constellations. They're concerned with what happens if this particular capability could be countered because they're very serious about the Taiwan scenario. So, and these are again, very interesting developments. Uh, Some of my colleagues argue that this is a very new phenomenon of uh, unmanned underwater uh, drones, but actually no, China has been working on this for the last, since 2010, so nearly 12 years.
2: I would also add in that what we're talking about with these sort of mega constellations is ultimately going to force China to accelerate development of its own commercial space sector. That commercial space, space sector got started in about 2014 when President Xi said, yeah, it's okay to have a commercial space sector rather than everything going through CNSA. But ultimately, that commercial space sector still is beholden to the CNSA and to the PLA Strategic Support Force to actually achieve purpose if they're talking about sustaining an advantage in space then they need to invest in satellite technologies and secondly they need to invest in access rapid launch to space responsive space launch uh, to be able to put uh, small satellites up quickly to reconstitute lost capability particularly if we're talking about waging war in orbit so at the moment the Chinese are still kind of thinking very much in old space terms with you know, Chinese launch vehicles being operated by the CNSA or by the PLA strategic support support force, what they need to be doing and thinking here is, you know, how can we develop a SpaceX in China that can develop a fast access to space that can put up large numbers of small satellites to rapidly rebuild our space capabilities? If they don't do that, then I think they're going to be at a disadvantage in the next war because the US will have that capability. They can rapidly deploy um, use uh, satellites to reconstitute lost capabilities. I'm sure the Chinese are thinking about that and watching what's happening in the commercial space sector, not only with SpaceX, but with other companies.
0: Yeah, just to add to Malcolm's point, actually, uh, what China has done, Malcolm, is interesting. So they have actually, as you know, announced their own national constellation vis-a-vis SpaceX, right? They do have galactic space that has launched 5G satellites, and there are other companies that are interested in building satellite constellations. But in 2020, the China National Development and Reform Commission took a very critical decision after they saw what Starlink is capable of, is that they uh, included the development of satellite Constellation supported internet as a critical infrastructure, and now they have actually scaled it up to be able to launch their own constellation by 2030. I would say that what they would try to do is to launch a few satellites, say, by 2025, and then build to that large-level constellation by 2030. So they have actually already taken a national level decision to build their uh, constellations. And in China, what is different from the U.S. is that their commercial sector is basically pushed forward by such state council-led funding and direction, right? And so they've already taken that decision. Uh, Whether they'll be effective, as uh, Starlink has been, uh, that remains to be seen.
1: I'd like to roll this back just a little bit though to something that Malcolm said earlier that, you know, China would probably approach taking out Starlink or, or other systems using softer means. And in this, I am going to you know really sort of focus on Starlink and more specifically on Starlink's uh, true owner, which is Elon Musk. And Elon Musk has a China problem and one that the region, I believe, is pretty well aware of. I mean, you take a look at what's happened in Ukraine and Russia. You have Elon Musk, who went on Twitter to say, Hey, you know, Ukraine, if you want peace, maybe you should consider giving Crimea to Russia. And that didn't go down very well. And so, countries in the region, like, and, 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 well, maybe perhaps a country in waiting, like Taiwan, have taken note of that with the backdrop that Elon Musk's other company, Tesla, which is publicly traded. Tesla has no factories in Russia, so Elon Musk and Starlink and and SpaceX can kind of do what they want, and to a certain degree in terms of what Russia wants. But in China, that's not really so because Tesla has a huge factory in Shanghai, which turned out seven hundred and ten thousand cars in twenty twenty two, and that's about fifty two percent of the company's worldwide output, according to Auto News Europe. China. If they don't like Starlink, I mean, they could threaten Tesla, I mean, possibly even take out the company by shuttering the Tesla uh, factory in Shanghai. Can we really actually count on Starlink being there under those kinds of economic pressures?
2: It's it's an interesting question. I mean, essentially what you're getting to is uh, a form of political warfare that the Chinese can do uh, in the gray zone. Uh, They can challenge uh, US interests by essentially trying to co-opt the the corporate leader of key uh, companies uh, to do their bidding. Would Elon Musk be prepared to sort of put um, his corporate interests above the interests of US national security or, or the interests of the Taiwanese people? My guess is maybe he might. So he might do a deal. Uh, in which case, you know, Starlink is, is not a factor. And, and then we have to factor in, you know, the loss of that capability to the ability of the US military and its allies to be able to operate in a Taiwan States crisis. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that Chinese would would explore that option as part of unrestricted warfare, uh, political operations, grey zone operations, uh, to, and cognitive warfare to try and reshape the battle space prior to the use of kinetic force to secure Taiwan. Uh, It would be interesting, though, to see what sort of pressure Musk would come under from the U.S. side not to kowtow to Beijing's wishes and to essentially remove Starlink uh, for use by the U.S. military and its allies.
1: And what should the U.S. do or the allies do if indeed, you know, Musk takes Starlink off the table?
2: Well, look i think this is a clear case where there needs to be more than starlink uh the competition is a good thing so let's let's get corporate uh and commercial companies um in developing alternative um systems that can can ultimately complement starlink in in a peacetime scenario but if starlink is not there either because it's been taken out by enemy action or because it's been taken out by chinese political warfare then these other um, mega constellations can step into the breach. So the clear point here is we shouldn't become totally dependent on Starlink for everything.
3: Chris? Yeah, there's one thing I might add is that uh, understanding that with Elon Musk's and I think Gwen Shotwell's commentary about the quote weaponization of Starlink in Ukraine and his kind of walking back some of that, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen um, when I have a hard time buying that you see that SpaceX as a company has created a new company specifically for supporting military activities, separate and distinctive from Starlink called star Shield. And because of that, a lot of those contracts that space development agency is working for their own transport layer meaning where all their communications are going to flow over for the new uh, proliferated warfighter or whatever the new name is, that the uh, uh, assistant secretary Calvary is calling what used to be called the national space defense architecture. Um, for space development Agency's missile tracking network. Um, I think you're still going to see StarShield is one of the contracts contractors providing those vehicles. And as a result of that, they're still going to be bound to the contract law and the requirements that are given to them. Um, also, I might add that I know that not just California moved to Texas that he's talking a lot about with regard to Tesla. I don't follow Tesla as much, but I do understand that He is looking at building cars in Texas, in addition to moving the headquarters there to Texas, not just for tax breaks and a little bit more friendly environment, um, but also because of I think he sees some of the the writing on the wall, economically speaking, with regard to the Chinese. Um, And hopefully with regard to batteries, you're seeing the uh, Biden administration and some of the other economic folks pushing more toward a a domestic uh, supply chain or alternative supply chains for the lithium ion and other types of batteries used in these types of vehicles. So I personally, since he is more devoted, I think, to his space vision to make the world a better place in his idealistic viewpoint, um, I would think that he would be willing to take a hit in Tesla in order to keep Star Shield and Starlink separate, but still moving forward.
0: I I uh, the only thing I would add is that when I spoke to some of my Chinese colleagues, what I got a sense of was that Tesla could be used. Because there are factories that are coming up in, uh, you know, in Chinese cities, there is a huge desire to invest more. So China has done that before, where it has... Uh, Put, for example, the one China principle condition for Belt and Road Initiative countries that want to build, uh, you know, manufacturing uh, capabilities or hubs in China. So a condition like that could be put, right? So, for example, Russia did that with OneWeb, right? Russia was launching, about to launch OneWeb. Uh, and then refused to launch because supposedly OneWeb could have offered imagery of Russian uh, military deployment, right? And then OneWeb had to go somewhere else to do it, and they so, lost their satellite too. Yeah, and lost their satellite. So it is—it's a—it's a scenario that I foresee. And in fact, what uh, what Chris pointed out, which is something that I'm start, I'm thinking about from the legal from the United Nations perspective, is that when you think about what uh, Shotwell uh, she said about how spacex never intended for starship communication to be weaponized she used that word never intended for starlinks communication to be weaponized by which she meant that it was used by a ukrainian military for moving drones or unmanned aerial vehicles or you know attack using starlink communication and capability and she pointed out that that was not the intention and so they misused it right So the very fact that she's making those arguments is my suspicion that there is pressure because Starlink is also looking for customers for their kids. And it's not just the United States. China has a billion people. You have countries across the world. And if it is seen as adding to military capability in a conflict that has so many different perspectives, uh, they're playing to that. And so my uh, answer to that is, We cannot depend on just Starlink or SpaceX to be that ultimate provider of constellations for communication, military capability for the United States. We must have a government developed constellation capability as well, where decisions and what they do and what they communicate is decided at the highest level of national security. Because we cannot force SpaceX to behave in a manner that you might want them to from a national security perspective. Uh, The United States is not China. China can force its space companies to behave or absolutely work to the national defense because they have passed the 2021 National Defense Act that makes it criminally culpable if you do not act to support the national defense. I don't think that is possible in the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't see that happening.
1: Namrata, Malcolm, Chris, thank you so much for making the time to come back.
3: That was great. I enjoyed it.
1: Yes, me too.
3: Thanks very much.
1: That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.